Indeed, O oh God, that's why we've come. We've come that you might be glorified. We want to enjoy you and at the same time give glory. We want to give glory and enjoy you. We want to glorify our God and thus find the very purpose for which we were born. Glorying in the God who made us and the God who found a way to redeem someone as wicked as I. Indeed, O oh God, we have discovered Jesus Christ to be the hope of the world. Not only is he our hope, he's the hope of the Nigerian and the, the hope of the Ukrainian and the hope of the Canadian and the Mexican. He is the hope of the world. And we bear a message about that hope. And I pray that you will stir within us a greater commitment to, to broadcast that message and to give towards its advance. Oh God, we have, there is so much yet to be done. And I pray that you will rally the people of God to a, to an evangelistic fervor that we might wisely and sensitively broadcast the message about the hope of the world. Our Father, uh, we recognize that uh, the, the, um, the problems that we see in our country are because there are sinners who live in this country, just like me. That in a lot of ways, we're a part of the problem because we're just as self-orbiting as anybody else. We're, we're just as caught up with pampering the flesh as, as the rest of this country and perhaps even the world. And I pray that you'll forgive your, the church, that we might discover the, the great good of losing ourselves because the promise is that's the only way to find ourselves. So we want to give up all rights to where we live, how much we make, what we do with our lives, and yield them to the God to whom we owe all. Now, Father, take our gifts this is such an important time for people who, who make as much money as we do. The longer we hold on to the money, the more covetous we grow. And so this gives us a chance to take a stab at our covetous flesh. So, Father, prompt generosity from your people. Not because you need it. Not because Gracie Van needs it. Because we need it. We need to learn what it means to give. And to give with gusto. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Second Chronicles, chapter 30. And while you're finding that, let me, um, I, I, I feel constrained to explain this to you again and again. Um, Last Monday, I'm off on Mondays. I'm off every Monday, and, and I, I work out in the mornings, and then I uh, usually, a lot of times on my bicycle, pedal down to Chick-fil-A on Germantown Parkway there. And, and um, I did that Monday, and I, I wasn't looking exactly my, uh, my best. Um, but uh, I was eating my little chicken sandwich, and, and this woman said, um, are you the pastor of Grace of Anne? And I said, I am. And she said, um, well, I would have heard, I would have known that voice anywhere. She said, uh, I listened just last, I said, it's loud. And then she said, yes. Uh, so 
She said, just last night I went on the, your website and I heard this little eight-minute thing that you've got and, and, uh, and I just recognized your voice. And she said, we want to uh, visit uh, Gracie Van this, this Sunday. And I said, well, uh, that's delightful, but just let me warn you, we're, we're doing the communion on this coming Sunday and it's a little bit different. And she said, um, you're scaring me. Um, what, what do you mean by it's a little bit different? And I said, well, and here's what I want to explain to you. Guys, um, the evangelical church, including Gracie Van, uh, prompts you into passivity. That is, we create a setting where you have to sit and listen to a talking head. And your participation is, is diminished, and that's the way we designed it. And I'm not sure that's always good. So what we've done this once a month, what we're trying to do at least, I'm not, I, I don't know that we're successful, but we're trying to create at least one service a month where participation on your part is, is absolutely essential. If, if nothing else, you have to pass the tray down your, your pew. We want to we wanna give you an opportunity not to be passive, but to be actively engaged in, in the pursuit of God in this worship service. So I, I didn't say all that to her, but I said, well, one of the things we mean by it's different is that my comments are, are very brief. And they, they are. They're much briefer. I, you know, I normally bring four pages of notes, and I, bring, I brought one. And that's by design. Because what we're trying to do is create at least one Sunday a month where you become a real participant. Gang, in a minute, we're going to hand you some stuff, and none of it's sacred. We bought that at Schnucks. It's not sacred stuff. What's sacred is where your heart is going to go in response to it. And that's my job. Is just to prompt you. You know those teleprompter. You know what a teleprompter is, don't you? Teleprompter is to to tell you what your lines are in case you forget them. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you your lines. So let me see if I can do that real quickly. Let me let me read three verses out of Second Chronicles chapter 30, beginning at verse 10. So the couriers were went went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that is something that endures forever. But what on earth are you doing with this text, Dr. Young? We, I, it's kind of hard to figure out anything when you only read us three verses. Well, I could have read you four chapters because the story that I'm, I'm interested in is about four chapters long, and I didn't want to do that, so here's what I want to do. I want to tell you the story real fast, and then, you'll, then I think you'll understand those three verses. Let me tell you the story. It really starts in chapter 28, Second uh, Chronicles 28, where we're told um, that Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now, you know by this time that, that, that Israel is divided into two halves. There's the northern half, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Well, the king of the southern half, um, where Jerusalem is, uh, called Judah, the king is a guy by the name of Ahaz, and he's a bad dude. You're, you're told that in, um, 
uh, in verse 2 of chapter 28. In fact, in verse 3, you're told that he even burned his sons as an offering according to the abomination. He was engaged in child sacrifice. This Ahaz guy is a bad guy. Well, as a result of his poor leadership, his wicked leadership, the kingdom absolutely comes unglued. And you can find it in the rest of chapter 28. God, look at verse 19 of 28. It says, for the Lord humbled Judah and boy, did he ever. He brought enemies out of the woodwork. You know, when, when uh, life is not headed in the direction that he uh, uh, sanctions, that often happens. Enemies come out of the woodwork. Well, Israel has got enemies from the north. It's got enemies from the south. It's got enemies from the, from the east and from the west. In fact, they even went out and hired some uh, mercenaries from Assyria and even the paid mercenaries turned on them. I mean, the thing is coming unglued. And as a result, uh, Israel just falls apart and Ahaz dies. And they, even, they don't even bury him with the rest of the kings because they don't like him. He was a bad guy. Well, in chapter 29, Ahaz is replaced with a good king. And his name is Hezekiah. Maybe that's a familiar name. Hezekiah replaces Ahaz. And Hezekiah is a good guy. We're told that in verse 2 of chapter 29, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the first thing that he did was reopen the temple. Apparently, Ahaz had shut the same thing down and kind of boarded it up and um, it was not even functioning. So Hezekiah, first thing he does, you're told that in verse 3 of chapter 20, is that he reopens the temple, he cleans it up, fixes it up, you know, kind of sweeps out all the dirt and reinstitutes temple worship. Uh, that's the first thing that Hezekiah is concerned with as he, when he becomes king. Get that temple open again so that God's people can worship. Then you come to chapter 30. The next thing that he does, once the temple is in shape, is that he calls all of Israel, southern kingdom and northern kingdom, he calls the whole, all of Israel, to observe the Passover, which we're told in verse 26 of chapter 30, hadn't been done since the days of Solomon. Ahaz, bad guy, he's gone. Replaced by Hezekiah, he opens the temple, and he calls Israel to the Passover that hasn't been observed since the days of Solomon. Uh, that's what you're told in, in chapter thir- verse uh, 1 and 2. Uh, they sent out all these letters that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord God of Israel. Passover had been forgotten. And so Hezekiah got the temple open. Now we're going to have Passover. And so in verse 10, which is our text... They send out couriers. Now, you know what a courier is? It's just a message boy. You know, he's got a letter from the king, and he gets everybody in the town square, and he says, Hear ye, hear ye, and the king says, Come to Jerusalem, and let's enjoy the Passover. That's what a courier is. That's what's happening in verse 10. And we're told that in Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mock them. The couriers sent out to invite people to the Passover. Uh, people just... <laughs> What do you mean Passover? I mean, I'm not interested in a Passover. I don't want to come to any Passover, Passover. I don't want one of those things. They laugh at the scorn. Then in verse 11, you're told, however, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun, those are just three tribes in Israel, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Now, my question is, what's so humbling about coming to Jerusalem? Why was that necessary? Why did they have to humble? Why didn't they just get on their donkeys and head on over there? Why was humbling themselves an essential part 
of their visit to Jerusalem. Here's why, folks. You know, as I said, they're going to observe Passover. And you remember what Passover was? Remember that first Passover in Exodus? When uh, all of those plagues, those ten plagues, and then the eleventh one is the Passover, the death angel. And uh, here Israel is in bondage to Egypt. And um, if they're going to get delivered from the death angel, they're going to have to put the blood of some lamb on their doorposts. And if they don't have any blood on their doorposts, they're going to die just like the Egyptians because they're just as sinful as the Egyptians. They're down there under the bondage, the cruel bondage of Egypt. And it was something that God did in the relationship to the shed blood of a lamb that delivered them from their bondage. And so they need to give that some thought before they ever go to Jerusalem. Oh, oh, I remember now. It was bondage from which Israel was delivered by something that God sovereignly did. And so in that act of remembrance, that act of rehearsal, they humble themselves because they remember that it were it not for something that God did for them, they would have remained in bondage. Now fast forward with me to the 21st century, and I don't think I need to tell you that the New Testament version of Old Testament Passover is that thing. You didn't know that, didn't you? When Jesus institutes this supper in the upper room, you know, right before he's crucified, it is a Passover meal at which he is observing Passover, and he he reworks it, he massages it, he changes it, and he gives it to us in this form. This is the New Testament version of Old Testament Passover. You didn't know that, did you? And I... I'm functioning this morning as a courier. I'm just inviting you to come to the table. But before you come, you better do this. You need to come to the table like these people came to Jerusalem. And let me tell you why. Because, guys, the mess that we're in was caused by our sin, by my sin, your sin. You know, the staff is reading a book together, and we get together on Wednesday afternoons. We're reading this book, and there's this chapter in there. I I wish you all could read it. It was on envy. Well, you know, I've confessed envy before. I'm envious, you know. (laughs) Are we all envious? I didn't have any idea how envious I was. And I'm telling you, every member of the staff will tell you the same thing. That was, that was very disconcerting to learn just how envious I am. But the, the, all I'm saying, guys, is it's my sin that got me into my mess. It wasn't their fault or her fault or their fault. No, it's mine. And the only hope of deliverance that I have is deliverance that is tied to a body that was broken and blood that was shed. I'm coming to this table remembering that had God not done something, 
I would have forever remained in bondage to my own sin. I want to show you real quick, and then we're just I want you to notice the outcome of all this. Look at verse 21. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem, that's the ones who came. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might. Look at verse 23. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. This was so great, being in the presence of God and being reminded of what he's done for us and the promises that he has given to us in his covenant faithfulness. I don't want this to stop. Let's do it another seven days. What do you say? Hey, would y'all like to go on a second hour? Maybe we could just go from 12 to 1? <laughs> well, that's the idea. This was so rich, so in pleasurable for the folks. They said, listen, now, you know, seven days wasn't enough. We need some more of this. And then look at verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. Great joy. Great joy that was brought on because people were reminded that it's my sin that required this sacrifice. And my hope of deliverance is tied to a body that was broken and blood that was shed. I'm inviting you to come. But you might want to consider coming to that table like these folks came to Jerusalem. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people of what's at stake here. That there's nothing sacred about grape juice and nothing sacred about bread. What is sacred is when our hearts go out to Jesus Christ all over again and say, Oh, Jesus, thank you. We lay hold of the finished work of Christ all over again as we remember the price that you had to pay for it. So now, oh God, meet us at this table. And remind us of what you did so that we could be forgiven. And give us the joy of the sweet taste of forgiveness. For Jesus' sake.